Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. If you were to look outside and it's a beautiful sunny day and you're like, oh, today's a good day. It's sunny. And then you were to look outside a different day when it's rainy and then you're like, oh, it's raining. That's already set the tone for your day over something you absolutely had no control over, the weather. When you can experience great joy, great love, it opens up that end of the range. But then at the same time, you know, there are times when we lose people or we lose a job where we actually go on the other range too. And I really think we want to live a life with like really the full spectrum of emotion. Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. And today I'm bringing you a conversation with my dear friend, scientist and happiness researcher, Dr. Jillian Mandich. She is a scientist on a mission to help people live their happiest lives. She's a published researcher, two-time TEDx speaker, the founder of the International Happiness Institute of Health and Science Research, and you can often find her on the media, in Canada, on shows such as The Social, Marilyn Dennis, Breakfast Television, and The Morning Show. These are all Canadian shows because Dr. Jillian, who I like to say is one in a jillion, frequents these Canadian um, talk shows. And today we are talking about you guessed it, all about the science of happiness. Dr. Mandish believes that happiness is not a destination, it's a practice, that there's no secret to happiness, but there is a science to it, and that happiness is not something that we earn, but it's something that we learn with time. And we, you'll hear this in our conversation, that the pursuit of happiness doesn't necessarily mean that the goal is to be happy all the time. So we had a very in-depth geeky science conversation, as you might uh, imagine, between uh, two women who love to geek out on the science in terms of how do we measure happiness? What are some of the dark sides of happiness? Is there sort of a toxic happiness culture? And we go through several items that are going to give you actionable tools to better understand the highs and lows, the peaks and pits, let's say, of mood and how we can have help foster happiness and to understand what are some of the things that we can do every day to be happier, to cultivate happiness. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jillian. I hope that you will too. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jillian Mandich. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, 
taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Jillian Mandich, it is such a delight and such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to the Better Podcast. Hello, hello. I am so happy to be here with you today, my friend. Well, that was a great foreshadowing because that is what we are going to be talking about. We are talking all about happiness. And I have to say, I have been looking forward to this conversation probably for a few years now. This is something that we have been trying to get on the books for a while. And I you are the subject matter expert on all things um, happiness. So just by way of street cred, um, we, you know, I call you one in a jillion. So you are, you are my one in a jillion friend and someone who I hold dear to my heart in terms of, you know, your ambition, your intelligence, um, your beauty, your ability to show up fully as yourself. Um, but for people who in my audience who may not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to be a happiness researcher. I'm sure this stemmed from your guidance counselor telling you in high school, you know what you should do? <laughs> There's a gap in the literature on happiness. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, tell us how you got into uh, studying happiness as a science and a, and a researcher. 
Yeah, um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I think this is such, and it is, it's been a long time coming, but it's, the timing is right to have this conversation. And I think especially in the climate of the world that we are today, it is such an important conversation to be having. Um, you know, and <clears throat> like you said, it's not like I sat down with my guidance counselor in high school and I said, you know, when I grow up, I want to study happiness. And in full honesty, it wasn't until the second year of my PhD that I actually knew you could research happiness. So my my research background is actually childhood obesity. So I'm from London, Ontario, Canada. Um, I'm doing this podcast from Toronto, Ontario today. Um, but I was always interested in health and wellness. So all my degrees, all three of my degrees are in health science with health promotion being the focus. And so um, when I was working in my master's degree with kids, looking at physical activity, sedentary behaviors, um, factors in influencing obesity, when I went into my PhD, in the second year of my PhD, you have to do what are called comprehensive exams, which is like the worst possible um, thing that you can go through. It's way worse than defending your defense. You're basically given a topic, the way it works at Western anyway, you're given a topic and you have to read like all the literature on it and then write a paper and answer questions. I'm looking at this data. And so at the time, um, for a child to be included in my research, they had to have a BMI, so a body mass index, above the 85th percentile for their age and gender in order to qualify for the research. And BMI, as you know, is calculated with height and weight. That's it. So essentially, I was using the number on a scale to determine if I could help a child. And I didn't love that. And I'm the oldest of seven kids in my family. And at the time, I had a couple nieces and nephews. I have like eight now. Um, but I thought my research, they're not living with obesity. So my research will never help them. And so I went into the literature and I thought, okay, Jillian, you're studying health promotion. What other factors impact promoting health, encouraging health, besides the number on a scale? And that's when I started. I was at Pilates one day, where all good things happen at Pilates. And uh, there was a woman next to me who was at the business school. And here I am, year two of my grad school, existential crisis. What am I doing with my life? And she said to me, you know, Jillian, maybe you should switch to the business school. So at, at Western, we have Ivy, our business school. She's like, you're pretty entrepreneurial. Or she meant, she said, this like off comment. And you know, those people that make like an off comment, but it changes your life. Those like moments. She says to me, or you should check out my sister's research. She's out east in Canada and she researches sustainable happiness. And I was like, what's sustainable happiness? And she's like, go home and look it up. And so I know you can appreciate this. I went home and I went down the PubMed rabbit hole. And you looked reading. it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so sustainable happiness is more the environmental perspective, like how our environment impacts. But because of my health lens that I look through things, I started looking at the research in happiness and health. And I was reading things like, you know, when you compare happy people to less happy people, happy people have lower rates of cardiovascular disease. They have stronger immune systems. They heal faster from injury. They make better nutritional choices. They sleep better, both in terms of duration and quality. So all of these um, behaviors or outcomes that I'm encouraging in a healthy lifestyle program, when you're happier, those things tend to be better. And it has nothing to do with the number on a scale. So halfway through my PhD, I switched. To happiness. It tacked a year onto my PhD. So a typical full-time PhD um, is about four years minimum. And so mine was five. Um, but I'm very happy that I did that because now I get to spend my days teaching and speaking and researching and learning all about happiness, which I mean, I didn't know about it until the second year of my PhD. And even in terms of like actual peer-reviewed academic publications, it's really like, and this is shocking to me, it's only been since like the mid-90s and even more so since the 2000s that we're actually seeing this big increase in the body of scientific work around sort of the science of happiness. 
And so, I mean, that blows my mind that up until fairly recently, we were focused on what's wrong, disease, what do we do, how do we fix things and not, you know, how do we, we get one shot at life? How do we live our best life? And so that's, that's a long way of saying that's what I do now. I think that's so important because that's really the outcomes that we're after, right? So when we think about cardiovascular disease, as you mentioned, and we think about obesity and we think about type 2 diabetes and cerebrovascular disease, all of these sort of big killers, we'll say, Mm -hmm. um, for that to have a direct corollary to uh, happiness, I think that is absolutely worth pursuing. And I myself have just kind of only recently really come into this idea and we can, we can unpack, I want to unpack the definition of happiness in a moment. But for me, happiness used to be just a, a, a soul pursuit, meaning, uh, or I'll say a, a singular pursuit, meaning that if I had my exercise dialed in and I had my nutrition dialed in, I didn't need people. <laughs> I could, I could just stay home and read a book and that would make me happy. And I've, I've, recently redefined that to really understand that community and being part Mm. of uh, a larger community, people who know and like and understand me and can see my quirks and love me anyway, or like me anyway, maybe is a a better way of saying it, um, is very important as well. And I, I, I definitely want to be talking about how happiness shifts over time because when I've, as I was reflecting before our, before you came on here, I was thinking about some of the things that used to make me happy and mm-hmm. how those things have changed now in my forties. But before we, before we go there, I would love for you to define what happiness is, because this can also be a bit of a nebulous term. You know, we hear parents like, what do you want for your children? Oh, I want them to be happy. What does that mean? Right. Um, I have a couple of thoughts in terms of what it means, but I will I would I will defer to the scientist here. So why don't you define for us what the um, what happiness means? So this is like the most complicated, simple question in the world, in my world anyway, at least, because, you know, it's interesting. If I walked out onto the streets of Toronto right now and I pulled 100 people and I said, how do you define happiness? Chances are I would get 100 different, maybe some similar, but not the same answer. Right. Um, versus if I took, I have, uh, by the way, if you're listening and you hear snoring at any time during this podcast, I have a little French bulldog sleeping beside me. Um, and he snores sometimes. So if you hear snoring, I'm not putting myself or Dr. Stephanie to sleep. It's <laughs> my French bulldog, Jocko. <laughs> but if I walked Jocko out on the street and I asked a hundred people and I said, what is this? Who is this guy? They would say it's a dog or maybe a French bulldog. So there's, there's no, there's agreement on that. But with happiness, we don't see the same thing. Um, one of the things that's really hard about happiness is that one, it's a personal experience. It's a subjective experience too. And then the third piece is that there's a lot of individual variability and variation in terms of what makes us happy, how we experience happiness, how we express happiness. Um, and so, and, and I mean, it's an emotion, it's like love, right? Like how do you take a feeling and put it into words? You know, that's where language can often fall short. So that's all well and good until you're an actual happiness researcher, where at the beginning of a research study, one of the things that you have to do is define, give operational definitions for the um, things that you're studying. So in terms of happiness, and this is a very controversial thing, I just want to start out and say that there are a lot of people fighting in the weeds in the happiness space. You'll see if you go into the literature words floating around like positive affect, positive well-being, psychological well-being, happiness. So there's one, some sort of debate in terms of the terms. But if we just sort of take a step back and zoom back, 
The definition that I use, which is one that's commonly used in literature, um, it comes from Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, and she's one of the leading happiness researchers. She's from California. She's out in California. Um, and she defines happiness as the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So essentially, the first part, right, a sense that one um, is good. So basically, the way I think about it is there's two pieces to happiness. So there's the in-the-moment happiness, how you're feeling, joy, contentment, positive well-being. I like that definition because it casts a wide umbrella or a wide net. You know, sometimes people will get in the what's the difference between happiness and joy or happiness and contentment or joy and contentment. And those are all fair things. But in my view of it, if we zoom out and we get the broadest perspective, then it's more inclusive of different people experiencing happiness in different ways. But then there's the second part, this one sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So that's the legacy, longevity, purpose, meaning sort of um, definition, which sort of lays nicely on top of the one that's also used a lot, um, which originally was from like Aristotle and Nicomachean ethics, where he talks about sort of the hedonic happiness, which is like the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. That's the in the moment, how you feel. And then there's the more eudaimonic happiness, which is again, that purpose, that meaning piece of it. So when I'm asked to define it, that's what I do. But what's interesting is when we actually look in terms of the research, what we see is that no matter how we personally define happiness, what we see is that as humans, we are pretty good at self-reporting our own happiness. So the way I would measure happiness in a research study is often um, I would use a questionnaire. So a validated tool, like for example, there's one called the Oxford Happiness Inventory, or there's like the four item subjective happiness scale. So you, you administer these questions, you score, you get a number which is, is good, but it doesn't really tell you much. But when you monitor over time, you start to see trends. So that's generally how we track it. We can also take our phones and do real-time prompts now. There's a lot sort of in the evaluation piece that's really growing. But regardless of what tool we use, what we see consistently in the research is that humans are pretty good at self-reporting their own happiness. So even right now, if I was to ask you, like on a scale of one to 10, how happy do you say you are right now in this moment, just as an, an awareness activity, not as a judgment activity, like what would you say? I'd not probably to put you on spot. Uh, 7.5 or 8 out of 10. Okay, perfect. So if I was then to give you the Oxford Happiness Inventory and you fill out the questions and then I score it, I would probably get something close to what you just said. So we see that we're pretty good at, for ourselves, figuring out, are we happy or not? But what's very interesting is that as humans, what we see in research consistently is what we're not good at is figuring out what it is that makes us happy. So we often see that we think it's the bright, shiny moments, it's the birthday, it's the graduation, it's the trip that bring us the most amount of happiness. And yet, when we actually look at what constitutes a happy life, it really comes down to sort of these small, and I'm using like air quotes, like small in terms of time moments that actually cumulatively add up to more happiness. So for me, the way I would answer that question um, in short is that I think that defining happiness is important, right? But it's most important for us to figure out how happy we are so that we can use that as a metric to see are we getting more or less happy. But it really is a personal experience. And, you know, I bet anyone listening right now, we can sort of check in and know if we're feeling happy or not today, right? And so more than the definition, I think that the self-awareness piece of tapping into our emotions and noticing and labeling how we feel, that's sort of the the key piece in, in my perspective. 
Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I, I think that maybe what you're alluding to is this subjective classification, you know, asking on the, mm-hmm. on a visual analog scale as you did, how happy are you, let's say between one and 10 or zero and 10. Um, what I find interesting um, around what you just said is that we have a very good sense of how happy we are right now. What is potentially maybe a little bit more complicated going back to that original uh, definition where we may be able to accurately say, hey, we, I am experiencing joy and contentment right now. So right now I'm speaking to my friend. I feel like we're putting together some really valuable content. That makes me really happy. The longer term piece is something that I think is a little trickier to figure out where I can't remember the exact definition there, but that your sense of life is meaningful and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I think in good was the other. Good, meaningful, worthwhile. Good, meaningful, and worthwhile. I think that that I is where it gets a little trickier. Again, it's a subjective qualification. We have to be able to say, okay, what are some of the, you know, the me- what is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is my why? Why do I, sh- why do I wake up every day? And I think a lot of people, I would bet, um, maybe not necessarily living, listening to this podcast, or maybe so, don't necessarily have that piece figured out yet because it's a hard thing to figure out. And I feel relatively grateful or very grateful. Very early on, I knew the path I wanted to take. I knew that I was going to be somewhere in, uh, you know, biomechanics. I knew that it was, you know, I had tried the, um, you know, the NICU. I thought maybe pediatrician. I, I didn't even last a week volunteering at the NICU. I was like, this is not, I can't see see this. This is not, this is not my happy place really. And found love and joy in the mechanics of movement, you know, neuromusculoskeletal, just fell in love with brain metabolism, et cetera. So I feel like I've maybe chiropractic found me. I found it. I don't know which, which one came first, but there are many people, I think today, maybe more than ever, um, where it seems like that their sense of life being good and meaningful and worthwhile is missing. So is there, so let's, let's talk a little bit. uh, First, I'd like your thoughts on that. Does the data suggest what I am, my observation is, which could be very much skewed and very much biased, um, in terms of individuals understanding their purpose and that it's meaningful and worthwhile. Do you see that in the literature as well? Or is that just an observation that is off base? Yeah. And sort of add another layer of complexity on that before I answer your question is that, like you said, like when you were, you know, finishing high school and figuring out what do you want to do next, if you were to go back to yourself at that time, and you were to ask yourself in that time, what makes you happy? And then I was to ask you right now. And then I was to fast forward to when you're 100 years old, and I was to ask you the same question. Chances are, it would be that different, yeah. be different. Same yeah. as anyone listening, if you think about when you were 15 or 16, maybe getting your driver's license is what made you happy. And maybe when you're 100, it's spending time with a friend or a grandchild or whatever it is. So it's it's not like we figure out this sort of recipe for happiness and then we're set for life. It's this constantly evolving iterative process that changes as we change. And so some things may be held constant. Like for some people, maybe, for example, they're an animal lover. And so always being around animals their entire life is something that brings them happiness. Um, 
And at the same time, maybe they take up a hobby. Like during the pandemic, I took up jigsaw puzzling. Um, I loved it. I, I remember you were yes. like a puzzle, a puzzle influencer. I, I, I that was my goal. I'm yet to get a free <laughs> puzzle. So if anyone listening wants to send me a free puzzle, my goal is to be a puzzle influencer. I think you day. gave me was it was it the brain? I gave you the brain. Yeah, you gave yes. me the brain puzzle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good one because it's actually shaped like the skull with the brain in it. Yeah. Really fun, right? yeah. And I think there's actually, I think you can go and get all the parts of the body and then like make a giant person puzzle. Oh, Giovanni refuses. So I have, so what we do, we have like a, a little tradition. I'm just going to throw him under the bus for a minute. So every Christmas we have, you know, we close the businesses, you know, we take time off or with the kids, et cetera. And so every Christmas we pick a very difficult puzzle. We spread it out over the dining table. And I have one that is the uh, skeletal system. So it's oh. all, it's just like the full body. And oh. of course it's just bones, right? It's just like the pale color. And he refuses to do it. He's like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> well, like, if, if, we love you, Gio. But if you ever go on vacation, then you call me and I'll come. If right. he goes on vacation and you're home alone and we'll do it. Yeah. And we'll get the camera and we'll do the whole yeah. thing. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. I, I was puzzle systems. Yeah. So anyway, I digress. The point <laughs> is that some things are consistent and some things aren't. And, you know, it's interesting when, as soon as I tell someone I'm a happiness researcher, one, the first question that I think they ask, and if they don't ask, if I like drew like a cartoon thought bubble in my head, a lot of them think, is that a real job? Because it's like a weird concept to be able to study happiness in for a lot of people, because it's a fairly new field from a scientific perspective. Two, the second thing that I get asked is like, what's the magic pill? Like, what's the one thing I need what's to the do supplement? or buy or yeah. get? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's the hack? What's the like thing? And the reality is there's no hack. It requires work and effort and an ongoing process of of self-awareness, of attention, of effort, of energy. All of these things are required. Like it's a big pet peeve of mine when I see on Instagram or Facebook, like choose happy. And I'm like, that sounds great. But like, it's not that simple. We don't just wake up in the morning and, you know, like we're going to pick our shirt and we're going to pick happy today. Like it doesn't work like that. It's very much a practice. It's a habit. Like when we think about happiness, the same way that we think about nutrition or physical activity, what happens is it starts to change the conversation because it makes it not. And you hear people all the time. I will be happy when fill in the blank. Right. Right. When When I get the house, when I get the guy, when I get the body, when I get the number on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, myself included, like I caught myself. So at the end of your PhD, when you're actually writing your dissertation, it's it's a very grueling couple months, very long days, writing a like 400 page paper. It's like a whole thing. And I remember catching myself in my head thinking, I will be happy when I finish writing a dissertation about happiness. <laughs> oh, the irony. I, <laughs> oh, the irony. Right? <laughs> and then I had to stop and be like, wait a second. And there was a lot of stuff that I've learned about happiness that I didn't know before I got into. We can get into that after. But in yeah. this case, the other thing about happiness is I think sometimes we think it's supposed to be this easy, feel-good thing all of the time. That you can choose in the morning. Yeah. And yeah. it's not that way. And and at the end of the day, when I finished my PhD, the day I walked across stage and my mom actually hooded me. So when you get your degree, you walk across and they they put the, the regalia hood over you. So my mom is a prof. So she did that for me. So it was like an extra special moment. And if I think about the accomplishment that I felt on that stage and the hard work, all of those days of the like checking references, looking for periods, checking spelling, looking at graphs, was all worth it. Because I think sometimes too, we think that a happy life means a life without struggle or without hard things. 
And so part of the way that I reframed when I was writing my dissertation was that, you know what, sometimes when we want something and we have a goal in mind, it requires hard work. It requires persistence. It requires dedication. Not every accomplishment is this smooth sailing, happy activity the entire time. Any entrepreneur or student has ever like gone through something knows that because I think that that's another piece of it too, is we think that it's supposed to be easy and happen all the time. And it's, it's, it's work and a happy life doesn't mean a life without challenges or struggles or things, right? Pandemics happen, job losses happen, divorces happen, um, health issues happen. And so a happy life isn't about getting rid of those things. It's really about working at our habits so that I think about it like a muscle. So like, you know, if you were, I, did you work out today yet? Have you worked out today? You work out in the morning, morning. right? Yeah. Yeah. Morning. I went at lunch. And so, you know, if we're at work today or working out today, we go into the gym, we lift weights. And over time, what happens is we get stronger, right? Our muscles get stronger. And so I think about happiness like a muscle too, where when we do things on a regular basis that make us happy, it's like we start to build or strengthen our happiness muscle. And then over time, just like we get stronger in the gym, we get stronger with our happiness so that when those hard things happen, it's not about not having them happen. It's that our highs, like if you think about sort of like an uptrend arrow, right, our highs get higher over time. And our lows just get higher too. So we're able to cope with more difficult things in a more resilient way. So it's really not about eliminating those things. It's not about choosing happiness. Part of happiness is understanding that it's a practice, it's a habit, and it requires work and effort. It's not just this easy, passive thing that we are told to believe that it is from marketing and movies and I love Hallmark movies, but from Hallmark movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you said that. That was actually my next question is what role does struggle play in mm. happiness? And I think that, you know, to your point, I, I, sometimes, you know, the paradox in life is that the things that are worth working for are work. They are a struggle and there's nothing wrong with that. And so often now, you know, this choose happiness, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, this like, just choose it, like wake up in the morning and the way, you know, you choose the red lipstick and then you'll just choose happiness or, you know, you choose your yeah. shirt and you'll choose happiness. I think that people, I, I see this a lot in the, um, I'll say in the online space, because that's sort of where we all are now, where you have this ideation around happiness being easy. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to, and I'm using air quotes, if you're listening on audio on YouTube, you'll see it, but like in order for me to choose happiness, I have to set boundaries around people who are infringing on my happiness. And maybe this is a challenge that you need to learn how to deal with. Maybe this is a lesson for you in order to grow and ascend, let's say on your path to, you know, where you're, where you're looking to go. It doesn't. And I, I, I have a little sort of, I'll say a little, you know, chip on my shoulder as it, as it relates to boundaries, because there are some people that talk a lot about boundaries that are just avoiding the work, you Mm -hmm. know, like you, it's not right to just say to your entire family, sorry, I'm not talking to all of you because I don't agree with anything that all of you say. And I'm setting a boundary because it's going to be uncomfortable for me to sit here and tolerate your opinion or whatever. Right. So, um, so I guess that all that long preamble to say, um, can you talk a little bit about this toxic, I'll call it toxic happiness. I know I've heard you refer to it as toxic happiness, Mm -hmm. um, before and, um, where struggle sort of plays in with 
maybe highlighting the Mm -hmm. difference between good and bad, the difference between a happy moment and something that is more of a pensive or somber moment. Yeah. I love that we're talking about this because so often, like you'll see, you know, like um, if someone's having a bad day, it's like, oh, you know what? Just be happy. Right. It's kind of like, you know, when you tell someone, I saw this like meme on Instagram and it said something like, has anyone in the history of the world ever calmed down by being told to calm down? Right. <laughs> like if you would like your wife or your girlfriend to get a- enraged, tell her to chill out or calm down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And with happiness, though, I think sometimes there's this perception. And a lot of it comes from the fact that like, we were never taught how to be happy. Like, no wonder we're having a problem. Like, in school, we learn math and science and geography, but nobody teaches us how to be happy. So like, part of the problem is we have marketing, movies, advertising, media, social media, um, all sort of projecting what they want to create this idea of happiness. So we have already this naturally distorted view. And I mean, myself included, like, when I switched from researching childhood obesity to happiness, Part of me, like, it's a very natural thing to reflect on yourself, right? And to think, okay, Jillian, like, are you as happy as you possibly could be? Because a lot of people choose research topics that are personally relevant or interesting to them or things they want to know, myself included. And so I thought, and I was going through a divorce at the time, so that skews the data a little bit. But I thought, Jillian, like, are you as happy as you possibly could be? And my answer was no. And so I thought, naively, but I at the time I thought, um, okay, well, Jillian, you're a researcher. Your skills are in asking questions, collecting data, learning new things. So why don't you figure out how to be happy all the time? Why don't you, I don't like feeling sad. I don't like feeling anxious. I don't like feeling depressed. So why don't you research happiness and figure out how to be happy all the time? And in all honesty, that was my goal when I first started because I thought that sounded like a good idea. As I got into the literature, what I quickly learned was that in terms of healthy psychological functioning, the goal is not to be happy all the time. And in fact, there's actually research out there. Sometimes in the literature, it's referred to as like the dark side of happiness, where what we see is that people that set their goal as to be happy all the time, and it's almost like they put their blinders on and like their whole mission in life is to be happy all of the time. Those people are actually less happy than other people. And when I first read that research, I was like, how can that be? Because my first thought was, if you don't reach your goal, right, but you're working towards your goal, you're making progress. Like say, for example, you have a strength goal um, at the gym, you know, you want to deadlift X amount of pounds. Even if you don't get to your goal by your set date, let's say, you probably were deadlifting more than you were when you set the goal. So then I thought, well, if if this is with happiness, then like at least they're trending in the right direction. But then I thought about it some more and I'm like, wait a second, what happens when we don't reach goals? If we were to like shove a microphone in our head, and people were to hear the self-talk that we have, right? We get down on ourselves, we get discouraged, um, we can, you know, get critical of ourselves, and so that's exactly what we see. And so, I think that part of being happy is understanding that we can't be happy all of the time. And this idea of, you know, toxic happiness. Uh, Dr. Susan David does a lot of work around this concept of what she calls toxic positivity. So, if you love this part of the conversation, check out a lot of her work. But basically, it's not about putting on rose-colored glasses and pretending like everything's okay. That's not healthy psychological functioning. It's just like you were talking about with boundaries, right? Like just pushing everyone away and being like, you're not making me happy. Goodbye. We are humans. And when we think about healthy psychological functioning, it's really about feeling whatever emotion comes up, not judging ourselves for it, not marinating in some of the more challenging emotions for extended periods of time, but it's about feeling them. Like I think that if I was to predict where the happiness research is going, I feel like the pandemic has in a way been a silver lining for happiness conversations and even for mental health conversations 
altogether because conversations have evolved. Like before the pandemic, and I do a lot of like, I'll go into, you know, organizations or to conferences and stuff and talk about the science of happiness. So before the pandemic, what I found myself doing a lot was going into, say, an organization and I would have to start my talk with like, listen, I actually have a PhD, it's in health science, and I go into some of the data about the connections between happiness and health or happiness and workplace outcomes or happiness in our personal life. And then I would get into like tools and strategies. But since the pandemic, like the conversation has really evolved from why do I care about happiness to what do I do about it? And so now we've really entered this entirely new world where we're able to have conversations and actually talk about our feelings. And that's a very exciting thing because part of being a human is understanding that we have feelings and emotions and being happy doesn't mean that pretending like we're happy when we're not having a good day is helpful. And if you think about like, haven't you ever had one of those days where you're just not having a good day and you want to try to just like put on some makeup and put on a smile and go through your day and pretend like everything's okay. At the end of those days, we end up being more exhausted than if we would have just let ourselves feel the way we were when we're trying to force ourselves to feel a certain way. And so I think with happiness, really a big piece of it is understanding that one, it's impossible to be happy all the time. And like, I'm a happiness researcher and I'm not happy all the time uh, because that's not the goal in terms of healthy psychological functioning. And so I think that a big piece of the happiness conversation is really about understanding that, yes, we can. And what we see in research is that when people, when the first sort of infancy stage of happiness research came out, um, there was this theory, it was called the set point theory. So essentially, they thought happiness worked like a thermostat in a room. So if you think about it, your thermostat instead of whatever it is, and then someone opens a patio door and it's freezing in Canada, so say the temperature drops. So then the heat kicks in and it brings it back. And then say, for example- it's Like weight gain, like the adipostat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And what we now know is that that's not how happiness works in humans. So yes, there is a big genetic element to our happiness. There's an environmental element as well, um, which I think- us living all through the pandemic can understand how our environment affects our happiness. Um, but there's a third piece. And so this third piece, there's sort of out of the three main ones, is the piece that my research focuses on because that's the piece that's most amenable to change. So that's our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And so what we now know from research is that not only is it possible for us to increase our short our happiness in the short term, so in the moment, we can feel better than we are right now. But what we know is because I talked about how happiness is like a muscle, when we actually do things on a regular basis that make us happy, we can actually sustain our happiness at higher levels. So it's not just a question if you're born with a certain capacity for happiness or not. Each and every one of us, no matter how happy or unhappy we're feeling right now, listening to this podcast, we all have the opportunity to increase our happiness and in a very significant and meaningful way. Yes, it requires work. Yes, it requires practice. And it's going to happen your entire life. Um, but to know that this is actually something we can do something about, I think, um, and I mean, obviously as a happiness researcher, this is exciting to me because my work focuses on, okay, well, what do we do about that? What do we focus on? Um, but it's, it's not just a question of, you know, you're born a certain level, like, you know, it's like Eeyore type people, right? Yes. There's not just people that are born Eeyores and not, or, you know, if you and even if you are Eeyore. What I'm hearing you're saying is that you're you don't just have this baseline level of happiness that you always will kind of default to. There are yeah. practices and action steps and action items that we will we're going to unwrap uh, as this conversation goes on that can help over time elevate you from Eeyore to what would be the opposite of Eeyore. I don't know someone yeah, someone or happy. Even if yeah. you're a more Eeyore person, and then be an Eeyore person, and don't pretend to be this really happy person because if you do that. And you pretend to be someone you're not, no matter who you are, 
you're in a slippery slope because now you are not being yourself. And we think about the things that make us happy. And even when people ask me like, Jillian, um, what do I do to be happy? And this is, uh, we were chatting right before the thing. And one of the big challenges I'm struggling, right, with, I'm supposed to be writing a book right now. I'm successfully procrastinating that, um, is because if I actually sit down and think about this idea of writing a book to tell somebody how to be happy, that idea is actually quite disempowering because I can't tell you how to be happy, Dr. Stephanie. I can't tell, you know, Geo how to be happy. I can't tell you listening how to be happy. Can I help you point the needle in certain ways based on research of things that are highly correlated with happiness? Absolutely. But for someone, you know, developing a gratitude practice can have a profound impact on their happiness. And for somebody else, it can actually have a detrimental effect on them if they don't like it or they don't connect with it. So it's there's a lot of individual variability in it. And there's also a lot of individual variability in how we express happiness. Like I, we talked about how it changes through the life. But for some people, they may enjoy, um, you know, like, not being happy all the time. And that's that's okay too, because that's not the point. The point is really figuring out for ourselves how do we get in touch with our emotions? How do we feel our emotions as opposed to bottling them up? And how can we create a few more small bursts of happiness in our life? Because that's how we start to move the, the needle. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. I think this is so incredibly interesting. And if I hear you correctly, and feel free to redirect me if, if uh, I'm um, mischaracterizing what you're saying, is that happiness can exist on a spectrum. And that, you know, when you were talking about your divorce, of course, I have also uh, gone through a divorce, it was very difficult. Yes. Um, and you can be happy and sad at the same time, like there were days where I was so happy to go into clinic. I was so happy to see my patients. I was so happy to care for them. And then my heart was breaking, you know, and in, in another in another vertical, you know, in, in yeah. my life, let's say. And even just being potentially excited about, an, you know, creating a new life um, through that, as painful as it was. Like you can be, you know, I was having this conversation with, um, a neighbor of mine who we have someone on our street where they, you know, uh, where they're divorced. And uh, my neighbor was like, I really like the new partner, but I really like, you know, I really like the, you know, the old partner as well. And I was saying to her, 
you can have two truths. You can hold yeah. those two truths at the same time. You can like the new partner and like the old partner. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, we're not team A versus team B, right? It's not team left versus team right, team Democrat versus Republican, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You can you can agree with multiple points and you can disagree with multiple points on both sides. Sometimes I think that there's, and we had Africa Brooke on, on, um, on the show, we were talking about this idea of nuanced thinking mm-hmm. where it's not just like black and white, or in this case, I'm happy or I'm sad. You can yeah. be both at the same time. Is that, would that be a, 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 a correct characterization of what you're talking about or adding on to it? Yeah. Yeah. That's called the bittersweet emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, which by the way, Susan Kane, if anyone listening wants to get really into that, she's got a great book. I went down that rabbit hole this year when that book came out. I loved it. Um, but the bittersweet emotion is actually a very rich emotion. It's like, um, there was one research study in particular that I think it was the green mile, um, the movie, but I could be getting that detail wrong where participants had to watch a scene in a movie that was happy and sad at the same time. Or an example in real life might be like, if someone that you love passes away after a long, painful battle with a with a terminal illness, right. you're devastated because of the loss. But at the same time, there's a piece of you that almost feels like a relief because they're not suffering anymore, too. Right, right. And so I think, and I love this conversation about nuance because it isn't that you're happy or you're sad. And like, like I said, like when I first started studying happiness, I thought, I don't want to feel sad. I want to get rid of that emotion and I just want to be happy all the time. And yet... One, as I've sort of got into this research, but even like if I reflect last summer, I went through a breakup after my divorce, next one, breakup. And I remember thinking, okay, Jillian, in this situation, you've been researching happiness for, you know, six or seven years or whatever it was at that time. And so it's like, okay, time to like put your pedal to the metal and do the things that you talk about. And one of the things when I went through that breakup, I thought, okay, well, what what can I do? And so one, you know, obviously talking about it with friends and with a therapist, but also part of it was allowing myself to feel sad. And what kept happening, it was so bizarre, was that I would talk to my friends, right? And I would, and these are my friends that know me and that know I study happiness. And when they were like, how are you doing? And I would say, I'm sad, I'm heartbroken. They would say things like, well, how can you be sad you study happiness? And I'm like, well, I'm going through a breakup and that's a sad thing, right? Both can be true. Just because I study happiness doesn't mean that I'm happy all the time. And I actually, like, if I, when I reflect back on that entire experience and the growth that I had through it, um, I felt the range of emotion more than I ever had, you know? And I think that there's something to that too, where it's like, when you can experience great joy, great love, it opens up that end of the range, But then at the same time, you know, there are times when we lose people or we lose a job or we we grieve a friendship or whatever it is where we actually go on the other range, too. And I really think in terms of like we want to live a life with like really the full spectrum of emotions. And in terms of healthy psychological functioning, the data is clear that that's that's what we want to move towards. Then it means being comfortable with the happy side of things, but also being uncomfortable with some of the more challenging emotions. And I'm very deliberate when I talk about emotions, I do not use the terms positive and negative. And the reason for that is because I don't think an emotion is inherently positive or negative, right? And again, um, you know, Susan, if you like this topic, Susan David does a great job talking about how, you know, emotions are data. Emotions are directives. They're a piece of information. They're not the driver in the driver's seat. And I think sometimes like 
if you're feeling really stressed because you didn't hand something in at work on time, like you probably should feel stressed or anxious because you didn't meet your deadline. You were not accountable to what you yeah, said. Yeah, the anxiety is not the abnormal emotion here. The the no. thing that is aberrant is that you were late on your deadline. So the anxiety is an appropriate emotion. Yes. That's the appropriate response there. Yeah. Exactly. If you're at a funeral, grief makes sense. Happiness probably for most people doesn't, right? right. Although my family uses humor as a coping mechanism. So sometimes there's that too. But I think that, you know, overall, it's really about, like you said, it's not about being happy or sad, right? It's really about recognizing that we're humans. And I mean, especially to us, like, they fluctuate throughout the day. I had this picture that a student drew me once. So I taught at Western for four years while I was doing my PhD. And I had a student draw me this sort of graph of her day. And she charted her happiness. And, you know, she woke up in the morning and she got to sleep in, so it was high. And then she went for breakfast but the calf didn't have the food she liked so it went down and went up because she went to the gym and then it went down when she went to my class but we'll put that aside (laughs) Um, maybe there was a test that day but this sort of fluctuation it's not about trying to keep everything constant trying to force ourselves to be a certain way it's really about allowing ourselves and giving ourselves the grace and the compassion and the self-compassion to to be humans and to feel all all of the things you know like when we think about um, I was in Miami last week talking about this concept of psychological richness, or sometimes it's called psychological wealth. Um, and what this researcher oh, talks about. that is such about, a great name, psychological mm-hmm. wealth. I love that. Yes. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so the talk I did, I called it, I think, Beyond Happiness and Meaning, Psychological Wealth or Psychological Richness. I can't remember. Great um, but basically, mm-hmm. I, I love this concept because what it understands is that, you know, how we feel in our head really does impact the rest of our thing, right? And And Wealth can be a financial thing, but it can also be like a richness in terms of the quality of relationships that we have, the quality of relationships we have with ourselves, right? Um, with with even like our environment. Um, all of these things really do contribute to it. And so when we can sort of step back and zoom out and take a broader perspective, um, I think that I'm excited to see where that goes. And I think especially since the pandemic to see sort of one that a lot of conversations are more normalized. And two, we're starting to really learn a lot more about this, right? Like I, I'm a happiness researcher and until a year into my studies, I didn't know that you didn't want to be sad and you wanted to be happy. Like I thought you wanted to be happy all the time and not sad. So like we're learning a lot and this is a very exciting field because we are. And I think that um, giving ourselves the grace to be humans, no matter what the circumstance is, not pretending to try to feel a certain way or to feel like we, I'm doing like air quotes, like should feel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's when we get into a slippery slope of like not good psychological functioning. And I think culturally, you know, you can understand why we do it, right? So, you know, when someone says, how are you, you know, you could, you know, you know maybe you were more honest and you had this uh, kinship and, you know, you felt safe to express how you were really feeling to your friends. But mm-hmm. most of the time people are like, I'm fine. How are you? You know, yeah. like you don't go into actually, I'm devastated. I miss, you know, I'm missing my ex-husband and missing the family unit that we have, you know, whatever it is. So I wanted to ask about, um, cause I think that this is a lot of this is culturally driven. I think that there's also a specific, when we think about the female lens, how women are expected to show up. It's like, how are you? I'm great. How are you? You know, yeah. even though you might be going through a divorce and yeah. you know, he's gambled your, you know, I'm just making things up. Yeah. Like he's gambled your life savings away and now you have to declare bankruptcy, et cetera. So what is the impact um, maybe you can speak to the impact on the cultural, our, our cultural experience in our ability to express 
happiness? Like, do we mute our ability to feel happy? Because the other thing that I hear, and this is more from, I'll say just from my own um, exposure to more immigrant, uh, we'll say immigrant populations. So uh, Greek with my ex-husband, Italian with my current fiance, there is sort of a you know, kind of keep it close to your heart or else you're going to get the malocchio if you're Italian or you're going to get the, you know, the evil eye in Greek or maybe it's not just those two cultures. But there there does seem to be, at least in some of these uh, immigrant populations, and I'm Portuguese, so I've also seen it, where you're not, you know, if you're, jo- if you're joyous or you have a smile on your face, it's almost like you're an idiot. And I, and I, and I say that... Um, as a, you know, a person who has come from an immigrant family who's been raised, but also raised in Canada. So I sort of have the blessing of being able to see how both of those views might, uh, may or may not be uh, adaptive, or maybe they're maladaptive. So what is it? What is your thoughts on culture, and our ability to express and experience um, happiness? And I'd like you to talk on the female experience if, if you have any data on that as well. Yeah, I love, love, love that you brought this up because I think a caveat to our conversation thus far is really we're having a North American conversation right now about happiness. Because what we see when we look at the research in terms of culturally across the world, the things that make us happy vary based on our geography. So if you were to sort of look at North America, for example, and to say, okay, well, what do we celebrate and award and reward as happiness, right? It's, it's, it's accomplishment. It's me. It's I. It's ego. I did this. That's very much the general perspective that we see. But if we hop across the pond to say Asia, for example, what we see over there more often is sort of this collectivist culture. So it's not I, it's we. It's not you, it's us. And our happiness is much more um, embedded in a cultural community where it's not just about you. So the language, even if you look at the words that they use for in terms of discussing happiness or the activities that are happiness inducing more frequently, things like that, it's very different. And so there's that piece. And then the other pieces. So what's interesting is so March 20th is the International Day of Happiness. Uh, In 2012, the UN um, declared this day to sort of bring happiness to a global stage to really highlight the importance of this conversation. And, you know, it started with sort of like when we look at like a country's success in terms of like GDP, like gross domestic product or something, they wanted to recognize that the success of a country is much more than just how much money they're making or what their healthcare system looks like. So isn't it Bhutan? Doesn't Bhutan have a happiness index, I believe? They do. And I think... They were like the first country to have like a minister of happiness mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, that I could we're, be we're number we're number one in that in that country, by the way. I just want to highlight that that better with Dr. Stephanie is always right. in the top five in Bhutan. So just that's amazing. Just, just saying, yeah, yeah, I might go there. You should come with me. This is a quick sidebar. I would love um, to. Yeah, I feel like that's a place to go. Um, but so the other piece of this is that when we think about uh, so okay, so we have. March 20th, International Day of Happiness. And so every year, the World Health Organization ranks all the countries in the world. And so it changes every year, but like the fight for the top couple is always the Scandinavian countries, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, like they're sort of fighting for the top. And then you go down a little bit, Canada, it's actually ahead of the US this year. I think we're at like 12 or 14. We went up by like one or two this year. Hmm. But what I love about this is that 
now we have every country in the world ranked together. And what one might think is that they might think that all these third world countries that are living in poverty are at the bottom of the list and that all the wealthier countries are at the top of the list, right? Because a lot of people think that, you know, money and wealth and stat, especially in a North American perspective, brings us happiness. And I love this ranking because it includes things like, you know, what does the healthcare system look like? What does the education system look like? Um, but it also asks questions like, if you lost your wallet, how confident are you that you would get it back? And so questions like that, where it talks about, you know, the security that you feel, the safety that you feel, the trust that you have in your community. So it it does give, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to assess and to rank countries, right? But it does give a more um, comprehensive evaluation. And what we see is that um, some countries that are very, very low, like I was in Costa Rica um, at the beginning of March. Uh, so the UN actually has a university in Costa Rica called the University for Peace. It's amazing. And every year they host this gross global happiness summit. I go and speak at it every year. I love it. But I'm in Costa Rica, a third world country, right? And I mean, obviously, I have my happiness lens on, but I met so many people that had nothing and that were really happy. Relative and, to North American standards. Yes. You say nothing. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some of them didn't even have running water in their homes. And yet when I talked to them, you know, they they were happy. And so it's it's a very interesting thing when we start to look at it from a cultural perspective, because it isn't a simple answer of like a country that's more affluent is happier than a country that's not. Or um, that a country that has been, um, you know, having a lot of challenges in terms of safety or something, we may see that drop. So there's not like a linear relationship necessarily in terms of this. But what we do see, and I think that the important take home here is it's not like all the rich affluent countries are at the top and the countries that are living in poverty are at the bottom. So there's got to be more to this conversation than just that. A lot of it comes down to individual differences, individual variability, perspective, mindset, life situations, and sort of an extrapolation of this, this sort of conversation that we're having right now is a lot of people will ask the question, you know, like, does money make you happier, right? Like if I get make more money this year, if I get a bigger house, if I get a bigger car, is that going to bring me happiness? And what we see is that once our basic needs are met, so if we're worried about, you know, putting food on a table or paying our rent or mortgage, absolutely money impacts our happiness. Once we sort of move beyond that, it's not a question of more money, more happiness. And in fact, sometimes we see that um, people that are constantly chasing that are actually less happy than other people. Um, have you read The Psychology of Money? Have you read no, that book, Morgan Housel? No. It's really good. I, and I'm not a money person. My financial advisor gave me this book and I was like, mm, I don't want to read this, but I did read it. And I, I thought it was a great, um, great book. But one of the stories in the book that stuck with me is that it was the beginning of a chapter and he was telling the story about two billionaires that were sitting on an island. So we're talking about two billionaires, right? So they're both very wealthy. And the one billionaire is sort of talking about, you know, all this new jet that he got, or I can't remember what the detail, but all these new toys that he had bought. And then the other billionaire who was slightly less wealthy than the other billionaire, he said to him, he said, you know, but I'll have one thing you never have. And then the guy said, well, what is that? And he said, enough. And I think that that's a key piece is not always striving for more, 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 more. But part of happiness is really appreciating what we have right now. And a lot of times when people ask me, what do I do to be happy? A lot of times my first response is, before you start doing or searching or looking to add or remove things, let's take inventory and appreciate what we already have that's good in our life. 
because sometimes we just get so busy day to day that we don't realize that. And, you know, I'm asking people all the time, what makes you happy? Because I'm a happiness researcher. But I have to say another silver lining of the pandemic is that before the pandemic, when I'd ask somebody what makes them happy, common answers were like, oh, the trip that I just went on or um, my big birthday party that I'm throwing next month or, you know, whatever it is, like these sort of bigger moments. And now when I ask people what makes you happy, I'm hearing more things like going for a walk with my friend, going to a movie, (laughs) having dinner at a restaurant, right? So a lot of the things that we took for granted pre-pandemic, we are understanding how much those actually contributed to our happiness and we didn't realize it. And so I think that especially if we're thinking about, okay, where do I even start? This idea of adding more to my life to be happier can feel very daunting and overwhelming. But step number one is about not seeking, like S-E-E-K, seeking happiness, but it's about seeing happiness. It's about noticing what's already good in my life that maybe I'm not giving attention to or I'm taking for granted. And that's a really great place to start is to look at like, what are some things in my life that I do like or that do bring me happiness? Because that's the other piece of this. A lot of times when I ask somebody what makes you happy, or first I'll ask, and I used to do this a lot in interviews before the pandemic um, or focus groups. And I would ask, are you as happy as you possibly could be? And I've never had somebody tell me yes yet. Never yet. Not yet. It could happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Then my second question was, okay, well, what makes you happy? And I started to notice this pattern that was happening where when I asked the second question, one of two things were happening. Either before they started their exhale, they were giving me an answer. My mom, my dog, my cat. It was almost like a reflex. Or there was like a really long pause and they really had to think about it. So when I started noticing this happening over and over and over again, I started thinking about it and I was like, well, if we're not as happy as we possibly could be, but either we don't know what makes us happy or our answer is so reflective that we haven't really given a lot of cognition or attention or awareness to it, then no wonder. And so a lot of figuring out what makes us happy is really starting to ask ourselves that question. That's step number one, reminding ourselves that we can't be happy all the time, but there are opportunities that we can do things, but we need to figure those out for ourselves. And I think that's the happy, unhappy part of the message is that, you know, a lot of people don't want to do the work. It's just like fitness. It's just like nutrition, right? You really want to be fit and healthy and have a long, um, vital health span, then guess what? You have to take care of your physical body, your mental health. You have to put good food in your body most of the time. You have to focus on your sleep, all of these things. And with happiness, it's the same thing. It requires work and energy, which doesn't sound sexy for an Instagram quote card, right? But it's that's the reality. And step number one, before we even do anything, can be, let me look at my life and let me start to notice and appreciate and really soak in or savor or even notice some of the good things that I already have. Yeah, I think that this is what you're talking about is just becoming a bit more awake and maybe a bit more mindful to Mm -hmm. the things that are already present. One of the things that I have started doing, which I found very useful, this is sort of a mashup of Alex Hormozzi and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Pakulski, who's going to be on the show as well, is this idea of, you know, when I'm with my, when I'm with my sons, let's say, thinking about, so Alex Hormozzi talks about this idea of, you know, if you were to take a snapshot of this moment and then now you fast forward and you're 80 years old and now maybe your joints hurt a little bit more and you're not as fast as you used to be. And then you reflect and you say, remember that time when my boy, you know, came and snuggled me on the couch and we just had this moment and he told me about his day, like 
How amazing was that? It's not a big moment in the, in the big con. It's not the big birthday party. It's not, you know, getting the house or whatever, but it's, gosh, I remember, do you remember that moment? Even though that moment might be happening right now, I almost think what would 80 year old Stephanie think about this moment right now? She would give anything to come back to this moment right now and just to kind of savor it because it is fleeting. Yeah. I love Um, that. Yeah. It's about showing up for our life, right. In all the capacities and not just letting life pass you by. And I, you know, I'd be willing to bet that anybody listening to us right now on this podcast is the type of person that doesn't want life to just pass them by, that really wants to, you know, be aware and to learn and to grow. And so part of that is is really starting to tap into how we feel and to, to notice and appreciate. Like sometimes I think about like even when I was going through my breakup, this is very common in breakups where you start to remember all the good moments, right? You miss them. You yeah. miss them. Yeah. And a lot of them are not big. Like you said, they're not big moments. It's, you know, the morning coffee that we'd make in the French press together or something like that, like these small things, but they're not small. And like I talked about at the beginning, a happy life is really the sum of small joys for two reasons. One is that we may think that taking five minutes to call a friend or, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to take my dog for a walk, right? I said the word W-A-L-K, but he's sleeping enough that he didn't hear it. So we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, you know, I'll go out for 20 minutes or whatever and then come back. And we do these things, but we don't actually stop often to recognize how much of an impact they had. But when you add up, you know, a little bit here, a little bit here, it's even like exercise. So, you know, there's a lot of really good data in terms of the the correlation between happiness and exercise. Um, And what we see is that even 10 minutes of exercise can have mood boosting effects for six to eight hours. The other thing is it doesn't need to be like one, go to the gym, do your high intensity interval training class for an hour and go home. It can be like sort of 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. The cumulative effect of movement throughout the day in terms of our happiness um, really does add up. So those are, those are what I call movement snacks. Yeah. I, hmm. I I actually heard Andy Gelpin talk. I wrote that down. I'd never heard that like a movement snack. I heard him oh, talk I about that. that. I, was like, I love, love that. it. And then I got into the, there's some research on it. You can go down that rabbit hole tonight. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) So all of this is sort of to say, like, I think that when we start to prioritize our happiness, we understand that it's not about the big shiny moments. It's about the small moments that add up. Because if you think about it, you know, often when I'm doing a talk, I have a slide and it's like one dot, right? But then if you do that one thing every day after seven days, now you have seven dots. And then after a month, you have a hundred or you know, 130, you have 30, 31, depending on how many. <laughs> you have a million dots after, an, yeah. after a month. All the dots. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, that's actually what adds up. It's like one workout doesn't make or break your fitness level, right? It's the consistent effort in the gym, you know, it's it's choosing healthy food most of the time. It's not about perfection, but it's really about those things adding up. And I think that a really big piece of our happiness is is really just reframing what we think about happiness and recognizing it's not a destination. It's a practice. It's a habit. It's something that we have to work at. We're not going to be happy all the time, um, but can we do things? And the other piece, so there's one, the cumulative effect. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is that What we often see with happiness is that when we do a small thing, and again, I'm talking about time and effort, not impact, when I use the word small, is it creates what we call in research an upward spiral of positive emotion. So I think a lot of us are more familiar with like the downward spiral, the anxiety spiral, right? It's like you have one thought and then all of a sudden, like in the next minute, the world is ending, right? So our spirals can go both ways. So when we're scared or we're afraid, we go into an anxiety spiral or a fear spiral. But when we do something 
that makes us happy, we can actually go into a positive spiral. So it's like you receive an email and someone gives you a compliment on a presentation you just did at work. The next email that you reply to, chances are you're going to be a little bit friendlier, right? Or <clears throat> you're smiling. And so not only does it that moment help us, but it starts to shift our mood into a way where we then move about the day in this upward spiral of positive emotions. So we see benefits in terms of like the immediate thing, but then also how it starts to shift the trajectory. And then if you think about it, if I have a couple of those in a day, a couple of happy moments, then at the end of the day, my net positive is much bigger. And it's not about like the big moment itself, but it's about these small bursts of happiness throughout the day. That's the key. So it's piece. like happiness snacks. Yeah, right? exactly. It's not, it's not yeah. movement snacks. It's happiness. Snacks. What you're what you're saying is is reminding me of BJ Fogg, who we had on the show about mm -hmm. tiny habits, and so exactly. these like very small little things, like the walk, the W A L K. I know that mm -hmm. I know that uh, Jocko's <laughs> right there. So you know the the the. Mm -hmm around going around the neighborhood, let's say getting out into nature, uh, yeah. five minute dance break, something like mm -hmm. that, um, that can, it doesn't require a lot of motivation. Like you don't have to overcome this huge limbic inertia where you're like, yeah. Oh God, I gotta go work out for an hour and it's going to be this. And yep. it's just like a little five minute dance break, a little, mm -hmm. little stretch, you know, whatever it is. Um, and doing that multiple times during the day. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. we see this over and over again in the research, like that's where it's at. And the problem, the challenge for me, the challenge with that is that it's not sexy and it's not that marketable. Right. So it's, it's easier to show a weight, like a weight loss drug that's going to, you know, mm -hmm. go on Ozempic if you don't need to, right. Something like that, where it's, right. that's the thing right now, but it's, it's not about shortcuts. It's not about hacking things. It's really about understanding that. I, and I think sometimes we think that like, if we're not happy now, this idea, like I talked about, I will be happy when, right? It's like, okay, if I'm not happy now, then when I do something or something changes, then I'll be happy. But happiness is not a permanent state, right? And so a lot of this idea of being happy is just starting with the idea that we need to rethink happiness, you know, shout out to Adam Grant. I use the term rethinking happiness all the time because uh, his book, Think Again, which is also a great book I recommend. Um, Adam Grant's a behavioral um, psychologist at Wharton and, uh, or organizational psychologist, pardon me. And from that book, think again, I really, I really, again, because I listen with a happiness, I read with a happiness lens, but I think that a lot of happiness is rethinking this idea of happiness because we were never taught how to be happy. And then we go through our life and we think it's something that it's not. And so a big piece of our happiness is really learning what happiness actually is, you know, in conversations like this, where we understand that we're never going to be happy all the time. We have to figure out for ourselves what is my personal formula or recipe for happiness, understanding that it may change. It's not a static state. We can't be happy all the time. Happiness is like a muscle. It's a habit that we build over time. When we can start to reframe and rethink about happiness like that, then the conversation evolves into it, you know, happiness not being this ethereal like barrage that we're chasing in the future, but it becomes something that we can actually work on today and something that we can actually start to feel um, in our life today, as opposed to it being contingent on if something potentially happens in the future. So what are some ways, let's talk a little bit about some action items, mm -hmm. understanding that you're going to maybe give some suggestions that you have noticed patterns in the research, in your, yeah. in the studies that you've conducted. What are some ways that have been shown consistently mm -hmm. to cultivate 
happiness. And then the opposite question uh, I would say is when we are feeling sad, so we've gone through a breakup or someone that we love dies or something like that. What are some, are there, are there similar tools um, and strategies that we can do to help not to uh, try to obliterate those feelings, but to marinate in them just long enough to metabolize them. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about like tools for cultivating happiness. What does the research say? Mm -hmm. And then if there is an equal and opposite for when we are feeling sad, when we are feeling, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, down, if there's, if there's any research in terms of what might be helpful there too. Yeah. So, I mean, we could spend days on this podcast with this answer, but, um, I'm going to put aside what I often talk about as the foundational three. So that's nutrition, movement, physical activity, and sleep. Those are all extremely important in terms of our happiness. And so we'll just acknowledge them. And then what I want to spend our time is talking about maybe some of the less common things that listeners might not have heard of. So all three of those are very important and they do play a very significant role. So one of the big ones is what we, in research, we call it autonomy. So Um, you know, if Marcus Aurelius or the Stoics would talk about it as this idea that you can control some things in your life and some things in your life you can't control. And so autonomy is this idea that some of our activities are volitional or they're chosen and some are not. And when we recognize that and we choose to give more of our attention, more of our focus, more of our resources, whether they be our time or our cognitive resources or what we're thinking about to the things in our life that we can control that is a major predictor of our happiness. So much so that autonomy is more has more of an influence on our happiness than how much money we have, how popular we are, how good looking we are, or how good our sex life is. So four things I listed, I think all of us can be like, yep, yeah, I see how those affect our happiness. Above all four of those is the idea of autonomy. Now, autonomy doesn't mean, like we talked about earlier, like pretend like nothing's wrong and live in a bubble and don't watch the news and don't go outside. Autonomy is understanding that part of life means that things are going to happen that I don't have control over and some things are going to, and I'm going to focus on the things that I do. And so it sounds very simple. It's a practice, but that's something that, you know, if we're starting to get into the stress or this worry, even asking ourselves the question, is this something I have control over? Right. Cause a lot of times, like I remember before I moved to Toronto, I was driving from London, Ontario, where I lived to Toronto and it's about a two hour drive. with no traffic. (laughs) The caveat being no traffic. And I remember sometimes I would be driving and I would be so stressed out in my car because of traffic. And then I had to recognize like, I can't control traffic, right? Like I can control when I leave, right? Things like that. But to get really caught up in a lot of these things that we can't control. Another big one is the weather, right? I heard um, uh, Josh Waitzkin once uh, talk about how with his son, he taught us, and there's no good weather days or there's bad weather days. We just dress differently for different weather, right? That's great. Yeah. So, but think we how many go, people. We went puddle hunting with my kids. Yeah. Like, Let's go. There's puddles out. Let's go puddle hunting. Yeah. So good. Because the thing yeah. is, if you were to look outside and it's a beautiful sunny day and you're like, oh, today's a good day. It's sunny. And then you were to look outside a different day when it's rainy. And then you're like, oh, it's raining. That's already set the tone for your day over something you absolutely had no control over, the weather. And so. I think that part of just starting to notice where are we paying attention? What am I focusing on? Am I like ruminating in things that I don't have control over? Um, That's a big one. Another thing that a lot of us do have a lot of control over is what we're consuming on media and social media. Oh, that's a good uh, one. That's a great one. Research from Sean Aker and Michelle Gielan actually found that watching three minutes, so 
three minutes of news that we perceive to be negative in the morning, those participants had a 27% greater likelihood of reporting their day as unhappy six to eight hours later. So it's not just a question of turn on the news in the morning, start scrolling Facebook, whatever, put it away and go about our day. The, the residue of that stays with us. And so, you know, questions like, who are you following on social media? How much time are you spending? Are you being intentional with your time? Like, and I'm, I'm myself, I'm guilty of this sometimes too. Like I, I live in a condo. And so sometimes if I'm waiting for the elevator, like I don't really scroll on social media that much, but sometimes when I'm waiting for the elevator, like I'll notice that I've taken my phone out and I've started to scroll. You're already in the app. You have no idea how you got yeah. there. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, I don't even remember getting my phone out. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so these are things when we think about control and autonomy that we live every day, right? Or even who we're following. Like, and I mean, sometimes it might be like family or something where you can't like unfollow them, but you can mute them, right? Um, or we can start to pay attention to when I log on to my social media, how do I feel? And when I get off, how do I feel? Do I feel better or for worse? Because if I feel worse, I had control over how I just chose to spend my time. And so that's a really big opportunity. And this is coming from somebody who works on TV, right? I spend a lot of time talking on TV. So it's not that it's inherently negative or positive, but the piece is really checking in with how we feel. And I mean, I have an aunt that has CNN on in the background 24-7 in every room in her house. You just walk through and it's like Anderson Cooper everywhere all the time. And I get so much anxiety when I go there because I'm like, I can't, like, it's just too much. And so then the, for a lot of us, the question is like, if you're commuting, what are you listening to? You know, you might be listening to a podcast if you're listening to this. So good for you, right? Because you controlled what it is that you're listening to, who you're listening to, what the topic is all of that. But some people just turn on the radio and go, right? Or like, what does your desktop screensaver look like? Or what are the photos in your house? What are um, the accounts that you are following? Like asking ourselves those questions, that's a really big one in terms of, so that's autonomy. That's a huge one. I and remember, I remember when, sorry to interrupt you. I, I just wanted oh, to okay. add, I remember just your point around the ant with CNN all the time. We all have a family member like that. That's, you know, a completely attached to the news. I remember when the Twin Towers came down mm -hmm. and of course that was the major news uh, story in the, in the early 2000s. And I remember there being uh, children that kept asking, why, why are there so many buildings? Why are there so many planes that are crashing into all of these buildings over and over again? Because they they were living in homes where this news story and the same image was being replayed over and over again. And then the children were watching this, thinking that this was happening again and again and again and again. And so you might extrapolate potentially from that, that we are also, you know, you hear about the plane crash or, you know, China is now using, not using the US dollar. And then you hear that 400 times and then they, whatever it is, you hear all of these things ad nauseum and it mm -hmm. amplifies the data mm -hmm. point because it is just one data point. Although of course, yeah. talking about 9-11 uh, is a horrific, it's a horrific mm -hmm. day. Many lives were lost, but when you think about the impact of watching those planes go into those towers over and over mm -hmm. and over and over again, that data point now becomes a much bigger data point on a plot graph that maybe, maybe shouldn't. Yeah. 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 And I love that you brought yeah. up kids. And so I think the next piece of the conversation that I want to have in terms of what do we do about happiness is, you know, I get asked a lot of, if you're a parent or a step parent or an aunt or an uncle, or have some interaction with children, I think especially in today's day and age, I, and I get asked this question a lot, like, how do we help our kids be happy? 
And, um, you know, so when I moved from London to Toronto after I finished my PhD, I did research out of Sick Kids, which is the largest uh, children's hospital in the country for three years. And I worked a lot with kids and with families. And the one thing that I kept seeing consistently over and over again was these parents that told me that they wanted their kids to be happy, right? Which is makes sense. Most parents would say that. But then when I asked them, well, what are you doing about your own happiness? They couldn't answer me. And so I think one of the big things with kids, and I mean, you have children, you know this, right? They don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do. And so I think that number one, especially if we want, um, if we're thinking about children that we may have an influence or an impact on, it starts with us. How do we model that for ourselves? Are we doing things that make us happy? And are they seeing that? Are they understanding why? And then at the same time, I think sometimes we shelter kids from, you know, like when a child falls and they're outside riding their bike and they're learning to bike and they fall and they scrape their knee, a lot of parents will be like, don't cry, don't cry, it's okay, right? You try to soothe or coddle or, you know, comfort your child. But I mean, if you fell and you scraped your knee, no wonder you're crying, right? So part of it is also this conversation that I was talking about earlier about inviting in all of the emotions, you know, not just happiness, but if we're feeling sad or frustrated and helping, especially children at a young age, really label their emotions, right? Are you sad or are you fret? Like starting to, to sort of tease out some of those things and also modeling it. Another one that's a really big one, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on gratitude because I feel like gratitude has got uh, sort of its moment. It's up there with Kale in terms of the people that got good PR recently, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say about gratitude is that it can become a family habit. So instead of having, you know, gratitude journal necessarily, it becomes a part of, you know, when we sit down for whatever meal, if you have a family meal together um, and, you know, you go around your table and you say one good. And if a child is too young and they don't understand what gratitude means, it's like, what's a good thing that happened to you today? Or what was your favorite moment of the day? Or what was a happy moment? Um, but starting as a family to build some of those things in can be very effective, not only because of the benefits in the moment, but what we know from research is that when we can instill healthy habits in children, so childhood adolescents, they are more likely to continue those health behaviors into adulthood. So I think especially when we think about really setting up that foundation for children, it's about how it is in the moment. But the research is really clear that when you establish healthy habits at a younger age, they're much more likely to continue them. And not to say that if they didn't have healthy habits, they can't establish them later, but the likelihood of them continuing them is greater. And so I think that, that that's a big one too, is really modeling for our for our kids and for the children that we interact with um, and gratitude being a great way. And then the other one I want to say, and this is um, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you want to read a book that's come out recently, um, Robert Waldinger, who is the current lead um, investigator of the Harvard study of adult development. So this is uh, a pretty good study in terms of um, actually it's a very good study uh, because it's what we call a longitudinal study. So basically they started following um I think it was in like the night or like 1930s or 1918. I forget somewhere a long time, two groups of people. So Harvard students and then people that were living in like a low income area. And they followed them throughout their entire life to the point now where some of them are dying. The research participants are dying. They've included wives and children now in the study. And the punchline of the study is that the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. So above how much money we have, above our education level, above our job, above where we live, the number one thing that impacts our happiness is social connection. And you touched on this at the very beginning of the podcast. So I wanted to kind of bring it back because we're social creatures. We are hardwired for connection, right? When a baby comes, you want that skin to skin right away, right? We want that contact and we thrive with that. Um, 
connection can be a lot of things too. Like, especially during the pandemic, I would get asked, you know, like, is a Zoom or a FaceTime or a WhatsApp video chat still connection? And it is still good. We still, we could feel really connected to someone. I feel connected to you and we're not sitting in the same room right now, right? So it can be creative. Yes, we need creativity sometimes to feel that connection, but it's something that I think, especially when we get busy in our lives, the idea of going for a coffee with a friend or taking the time to call a friend and check in or to send that email can easily be something that drops off our to-do list, right? And yet really reminding ourselves that although those things may seem small and they don't cost a lot of money to feel connected, if anything, um, it's a really, really important one. We're social creatures. And if we think about what, and it doesn't matter if we're introverted or extroverted across the board, what we see is that we need the way we get connection may be different, but that is a huge, huge piece of it too. Beautifully said. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I know this is going to be so valuable, um, to everyone that's listening And, um, I would love for you to, I know that you're working on a book, not quite ready, uh, not quite ready yet, (laughs) uh, but we'll continue our offline conversations around this. But if people want to learn more, are you currently conducting any studies at this, at this moment, or if people want to interact with you, where can they find you? Mm. So, um, my website is a good hub, which is my name, jillianmandich.com and it's Jillian with a G. So it's G I L L I A N M A N D I C H. Um, and then my Instagram is at Dr. Jillian Manich, and I'm actually gearing up to be doing a study very shortly that we will be recruiting for. So if you have never participated in research or you have and you're interested, um, I can't say much more because we're not through the ethics board yet, but coming up in the horizon, if you follow me on socials, that will be coming out probably um, late spring. So okay, great, yeah. great, great, great. Well, by the time this podcast airs, it'll be around that time. So Perfect. there's a, there there's we a go. wait list. And I'll be can, posting can... it all over my website, my Instagram. Great. It'll be there once we can, once we get ethics approval. <laughs> if we could. My a... friend, you are one in a jillion. My friend, Jillian Mandich, Dr. Jillian Mandich, thank you so much for your time and your focus and your energy today. I know this is going to be so helpful. I, I agree with you on all of your points around cultivating happiness. It is a muscle. It is something that we need to pay attention to. And social connection. Who knew? <laughs> it wasn't yeah. the diet and the exercise after all. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, of course, yes, those things are important. I'm, I'm saying that in jest, but I, I can't... Uh, stress enough how important it is to feel like you are part of something somewhere Mm. where people see you and know you and Mm. like you and accept you for all the good, all the shadow, all, you know, the light and the dark, you know, the whole thing, which is Mm. just the human experience. So thank you. So I want to just really quick before we wrap, I want to thank you first of all for having me today and for having this conversation because I think a lot of times we just assume that happiness is a given, right? Or something that we have to figure out and it's not part of the conversation. And, you know, um, watching you in your life, uh, modeling for people, right? Going through things, figuring things out, learning, growing. Um, I really admire you for that. And I wanted to leave with just one last thought. I did a talk at Lakehead University during the pandemic. So it was a webinar. And During it, um, I talked about this idea, like we talked about today, how happiness is not a destination, it's a practice. And when I had a, um, I was chatting with the professor that invited me after the event, she said to me, you know, Jillian, when you were talking about this idea that happiness is not a destination, it's a practice, it reminds me of a photo that I have on the fridge at my house, and I'm going to send it to you. And so she sent it to me, 
And uh, essentially, it's from this book. It's called Big Panda, Tiny Dragon. It's um, a book based on um, some Buddhist philosophy. If you ever look for like giving a book to a child or something, it's a great one. But this photo is a picture of the the big panda and the little tiny dragon sitting on him and the big panda or the tiny dragon. I forget one of the masks. What's more important, the journey or the destination? And then the other one says the company. Mm. And I love that because at the end of the day, who we go with, who we spend our time with, whether that be people um, that we're actually in person with, whether it be people that we spend our time with of who we're listening to in a podcast, whether it be who we spend our time with with a book that we're reading, that is the secret sauce of life. And at the end of the day, we're not going to remember that one accomplishment or whatever, but we're going to remember the relationships, how we felt, and who we shared that time with. And so I am so grateful to have spent this time with you and with all of you listening. And uh, let's keep the happiness conversation going. Beautifully said. Thank you, Jill. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 